morning, open them with me to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. If you go to James, you've gone too far. Amen. Back up a little bit towards the end of the New Testament. Um, Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Praise God. Um, thank you, Jesus. All right, let's begin at, um, at verse number 10. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10. Um, on occasion, I come to the pulpit with, with a word burning in my heart, and, and one of my simple prayers is, Father, just don't let me mess it up. Amen. So I'm excited about what he has to reveal to us today, and I'm glad you're here to receive it. And, and, um, uh, and again, if you're not present in the room, are able to uh, take advantage of this uh, through the uh, Internet. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren amen just to get towards the end of the message first when it says that those who are being sanctified, that's speaking of every born-again man or woman. Okay, that is one of the ways the Bible identifies you as a born-again person, as one who is being sanctified. Sanctification is an ongoing process in our lives. Um, Ephesians, the Holy Spirit through Paul said it this way, we're growing up into Jesus in all things. So sanctification is an, is an ongoing process, and it's something that, that primarily takes place um, in the part of you the Bible calls your soul. Um, you are a spirit, you possess a soul, and all of that is contained within, like a hand in a glove, within a physical body. And when we talk about what salvation did at the spirit level of your being, we see that you have been made perfect, you have been made complete at that level of your existence. Sanctification is where our, our thinking is catching up with what's already happened to us in our spirit and where we're becoming spiritually minded. The Bible says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be carnally minded is death. Um, someone who is carnally minded is someone who has been born again, but for the most part still thinks like someone who has not been. So when I was made completely new uh, through salvation, it was not my body that was made new, it was not my soul that was made completely new, it was my spirit. And so when he says those who are being sanctified, but notice now, he says the one who is sanctifying, both he who sanctifies, that's God, and those who are being sanctified, that's you and me, are all of one. And that all of one there literally means we, we're from the same source, okay? We all come from the same place, amen. And that place is God, right? Um, that place is God. Now, I want to uh, spend some time this morning breaking this verse down. So I love to preach, but I also love to teach, and we're probably going to be a little teaching heavy, at least to get started uh, this morning. And it's very important because this passage, it, it contains a lot of truth in condensed form. And so we're going to unpack it um, uh, years ago, um, I bought a tent, and um, 
one of the reasons I bought the tent that I, that I purchased is it came with a case, had wheels on it, handle, and I thought, man, that'd be nice to store it and, and um, you know, move it around. It was kind of heavy, you know. And so we went camping, and um, I realized when I was taking that thing out of that case that there was no way I was ever going to get it back in there. Um, and literally, I used the case, a tub, and a bag um, is, is what that tent uh, was stored in until we donated it to the foundry not too long ago. So when we begin to unpack this, you're going to be amazed, you know, how in the world only God could get so much truth in two verses, okay? But that's what we have here. We, we have a lot of truth packed into two verses. So let's just start breaking it down, and as we work our way through this, um, we'll, we'll start putting these pieces together. But if you notice that first phrase, for it was fitting for him, for it was fitting for him. Now, the, the pronoun here is referring to Father God. It was, it was fitting for Father God. It was fitting for him, okay? Now, when it says it was fitting for him, to be honest with you, in, in my study of these verses over the years, that's kind of the phrase that I've rushed past. Um, uh, in, in other words, I'm thinking, okay, it's just kind of the introductory remark, and let's get to this good part about the captain of our salvation, those who sanctified, he who sanctifies are all of one. You know, those, those things are so rich that I've tended in the past to, to, to rush through this opening phrase. But this opening phrase sets the tone um, for the rest of these passages, for it was fitting for him. The Amplified Classic Version takes this phrase and says this, for it was an act worthy of God and fitting to the divine nature. It was an act worthy of God and fitting to the divine nature. In other words, when he says it was fitting uh, for him, this, this means a couple of things, and I want you to understand both of them. First of all, when it says it was fitting for him, he's saying that this is congruent with his nature. That, that this is, uh, it was because he has done this for you and me and what he has done for you and me and the sacrifices that he has made and the gifts that he's given and the price that he's paid, all of this is, is speaking to who he is. In other words, this wasn't something that he did on a lark or on the spur of a moment, something that is quote-unquote out of character for him, but this is right in line with the character of who our Heavenly Father is, the love that he has, and it reveals much to us about his person. So first of all, when it says it was fitting for him, he's saying that this is an act worthy of God. It was something that, that goes alongside and, and, and shouldn't surprise us at all uh, as far as it revealing uh, something about who he is and his nature, okay? But there's another side of this when it says it was fitting for him that I think is important for us uh, also to look at and understand. When it says it was fitting for him, what he's literally saying here is no one else was fit to do it, okay? No one else was fit to do it, all right? So when we talk about fitness, you know, someone being physically fit, okay? I've been uh, doing a lot of work in the yard, been shoveling dirt and swinging sledgehammer and, and these kinds of things, and it's, and it's helped me get in better shape. In other words, I'm becoming more physically fit 
So what does that really mean, though, when we talk about fitness? Well, fitness is the quality of being suitable to fulfill a particular role or task. Amen. So the more fit you are, uh, the more jobs you can do, right? If you're out of shape, it's going to be hard for you to, you know, uh, throw bales of hay onto the back of a trailer. Uh, so fitness and, and someone's fitness level uh, is speaking of their ability uh, to fulfill a particular role or to accomplish a certain task. So when it says it was fitting for him, um, what we're seeing here is that no one else was suitable. Um, nobody else could pull it off. Um, no, nobody else was in a position to do for us um, what only God was in a position to do for us. So it was fitting for Him. He alone was suitable to fulfill what needed to be fulfilled and to do what needed to be done to bring you and me to glory, to, to, to bring us back to the place that Father God originally intended. All right? Now, the next phrase, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. If you'll notice, there's, there's commas there, and, and this is uh, further solidifying uh, the point made in the opening phrase. When it says for whom, listen to me please, when it says for whom are all things, this literally means um, on account of whom, okay? And so what he's literally saying here is for whose sake all things exist. Everything that exists, exists for God's sake. It, it all was created by Him, okay? So when it says for whom, on account of whom, that is, for whose sake all things exist, God then, listen to me please, this is important, God is the final reason for all things. God is the final reason for all things. By whom, so, so it says, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. By whom is literally means through whose agency. Okay? I'm not trying to bore you, just bring your hearts to attention this morning. Let's, let's dig into this. He's, he's literally saying that it was the ability of God, it was, it was the power of God, it was the agency of God um, that has produced all things, or that all things have come into being, or all things have come into existence. So they've all come into existence because of Him, they've all come into existence by Him, they've all come into existence for His sake. Okay? I've been doing um, some, some teaching uh, at the Foundry, and it's some new things, some things the Lord uh, was revealing to me uh, during this you know, last few months, and, and I mentioned that I've been doing some writing in the morning, and all this is in the mornings, all this is going to be a part of the, of the new book that I'm working on. But let me just plant this thought, and I have to be careful here because, man, it's like squeeze ketchup bottle and ketchup comes out. There's a lot of this in me right now, but let me just, let me just give you this for your consideration, okay? Any theory, and, and I don't mean creation, you know, truth, I mean any theory that man has come up with uh, to explain our existence has one fatal error, okay? And that fatal error is the assumption that, that something has always existed. In other words, if you believe in the Big Bang, where did the stuff that blew up come from? No matter how far you trace it back, you always have to have at least something to start with, okay? 
right? Which means what? That any theory leads you headlong into the idea that there has to have been something that was not created. Amen? Because you can't take, can't get something from nothing. So that means there always has to have been something. Amen? And of course for me it's not a, a, a very big jump from uh, therefore there always has to have been someone. Amen? Are you with me this morning? Praise God. Praise God. Oh, I want to I spend some more time right there, but let me just keep going. So all things are from Him. All things are by Him. All things uh, came into being because of His eternal existence. Remember, our God is without beginning and without end. He has always been and He will always be. Okay? Amen. Now, it says, it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Notice He's building, He's leading to he says, in bringing many sons to glory. In bringing many sons to glory. Okay, so we've mentioned this a time or two, and we've spent probably more time on this phrase than others in these verses. But let me just remind you once again that this is what Father desires for you and me. It's what He desired, desired, and what He decided. It's what He desired and what He decided before we were ever created. Remember, we exist because of Him. It is by His agency we exist. We exist for His sake. And He is the final reason for our existence. Amen. You're not the final reason for your existence. Why you think you're here, right, doesn't trump why He says you're here. He is the final reason for your existence. He is the one, because He created you, He is the one who defines you. Because He created you, He is the one and only one who can tell you what you were created for. Amen. Amen. Oh, sweet Jesus, this stirs me up. So, let's go to 2 Timothy. I'll put it up on the screen. Just stay with me there in Hebrews 2. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us, speaking of God, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, not according to what we've done, not according to what we've decided, not according to what we've desired, but according to His own purpose, His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. We, we use this line of, of thinking on Wednesday night. I'll apply it here. It wasn't like I said to my Creator, you either create me for glory or don't create me at all. Right? I didn't decide that. He decided that. This was not what I purposed for myself. It's what He purposed for me. Remember when the disciples were sitting around talking about who was the greatest? And Jesus overheard their conversation and walked up into the middle of it. He didn't rebuke them for desiring glory. He didn't rebuke them for desiring greatness. They were created for greatness. They were created for glory. Instead of rebuking them for desiring it, He told them how to have it. He told them how to be great. He told them how to walk in greatness. He told them how to walk in glory. Amen. How about this? You are His doings. Okay, if you're taking notes, write that down. You are His doings. Just curious, do you, under, do you understand that phrase? Um, it's sometimes used when one person is trying to distance themselves from either the blame or credit for the action of another person. Right? So somebody you work with took it upon themselves to you know, do something a completely different way than the boss told you to do it. And, um, 
and maybe it didn't work out too well. And so now everybody's in trouble and you say, uh, th that's his doings, right? He did this himself. He did this without any input from me. He, 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 or if, if, you're a, if you're a humble person, right, um, maybe you're getting credit for something that you had nothing to do with, right? And you want to step up and say, hey, look, I, I appreciate you patting me on the back, but really and truly I had nothing to do with this. Uh, Jane, that, this is her doings. She did every bit of this. She took every bit of this on herself. Um, and and, and she, this was her idea. Uh, she stayed late. Um, you know, she even pay, paid money out of her own pocket. Um, this, this has nothing to do with me. This, this is so-and-so's doings. Amen. All right? So if you can understand that phrase, you are his doings. You're his doings. He did this. He made you. He planned you. He desired you. He decided you. He gave you grace and purpose in Christ Jesus before time began. <sighs> look at somebody next to you. You can maintain social distancing and look at somebody, right? Look at somebody next to you and say, I'm his doings. I'm his doings. Praise God. So in bringing many sons to glory, this next phrase to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. To make, I'm his doings. Come on now. I'm his doings. Paul said it this way. I am who I am. I am what I am by the grace of God. I didn't make myself. See, that's the lie that the devil's tried to tell us. You know, in other words, to believe that we all got here by some means other than divine intelligence and a divine creator is ultimately, it's, it's the ultimate statement of arrogance because what are we saying? We created ourselves. That we created ourselves. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We created, that's the lie that the devil tries to get us to buy into. My friend, I am his doings. He created me. He knew me. He formed me from dust. He knew every day of my life before I ever lived a single one. He saw me when I was formed in my mother's wombs, but he knew me, my mother's womb, but, but he knew me before I was ever formed in her womb. I'm his doings. Now, notice we're building on some stuff. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, by whom are all things, um, in bringing many sons to glory, right? So the, one who, the only one who was fit to do it the only one who was able to do it because from him and by him and through him are all things, right? Bringing many sons to glory. How's he gonna, how is he going to bring many sons to glory when he only has one, only one son? He wants many sons to be co-glorified with Jesus. He wants many sons. Let me go back up here. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I should have done this at the beginning. Let's go back through our list right quick, okay? I hope you never tire of hearing these things. These are some things we've been talking about now for months, okay? Number one, Father God desires to treat you like sin never happened. Number two, Father God desires for all of his children to be like Jesus is to him. Number three, Father God desires for all of his children to have the same access to him as Jesus. Number four, Father God desires for all of his children to have the same fellowship with him as Jesus. Number five, Father God desires for all of his children to have the same inheritance from him as Jesus. Number six, Father God desires for all of his children to be blessed like Abraham was blessed. I got to stop there for just a moment, okay? 
This is hot off the presses. People know that Abraham was blessed. People who know Abraham and understand his history understand that the blessing of God upon his life did many things for him. Brought that protection that Matthew was talking about. It, it brought provision. It brought promotion. He was promoted. But it also brought prosperity to him. I didn't listen to it very long. I just prayed for the man and moved on. But I heard a man preaching this week. He was talking about the prosperity gospel and materialism and, and, and just basically uh, you know, hammering uh, Christians who believe it's God's will for us to prosper. Who believe it's, it's God's will for us to, to, to prosper. And listen, financial prosperity is only one small piece of it, but it includes... Fin Abraham prospered, and he also prospered financially. He prospered in every area, let's say it this way, including financially. Okay? Let me ask you a very silly question this morning. Is God rich? <laughs> he paves streets with gold. He's rich, okay? But see, you say, well, but He's God. He's God. This is one of the reasons why he's saying that not just his blessing came upon you, right? Because ultimately the blessing that was on Abraham came from God. So he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became a curse for you so that the blessing of Abraham could come upon you. And I'm like, okay, that's cool that we're, we're still acknowledging Abraham. It's cool that we're still, you know, recognizing him and, and all those other things. But ultimately, the blessing of Abraham coming upon you, where did the blessing that was on Abraham come from? It came from God. So why not just say that the blessing of God is upon you? He wanted to specify, this is one of the reasons, not the only, but this is one of the reasons. He wanted to specify that the blessing that was upon Abraham is upon you, Right? Because you can easily explain away God being rich, right? But we see the blessing of God upon a man made that man rich. We're sons of Abraham. He's father Abraham. Are you hearing me? So this idea that, that God does not, that God somehow wants his people poor and, and, and it's, a, it's a lie from the enemy. Let me just keep going here. Father God desires for all of his children to be blessed like Abraham. Do you believe that? Do you believe Father God wants you to be blessed like Abraham was blessed? That he wants you to prosper the way Abraham prospered? Amen. This is Father God's desire. So the completed work of Jesus provides a permanent solution to the sin that separated us from all these things that Father God desires for us. Alright? So, how was he going to do it? How was he going to bring many sons to glory? Because remember, we all sinned and we fell short of God's highest and best. We fell short of what God desired for us. We, 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 instead of being blessed, we were cursed. So, Father God desires to bring many sons to glory. You are his doing. How was, how was he going to do that? He's going to do that by making the captain of your salvation perfect through sufferings. Make the captain of their salvation. So who is the captain of our salvation? This is Jesus. Am I losing you? Still with me? Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Now again, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but this word translated into our English word captain, all right, um, it literally means 
Um, the first, let me, let me go down to my notes and get it exactly, all right? So this, this, um, this word captain is a Greek compound word, and it literally means the one who goes first. The one who goes first. Jesus was the, is now, he was the only begotten. He's now the firstborn among many brethren. He is the firstborn from the dead. That was our Easter sermon, remember. He, he, is the, he is the first. He's the one who went first. First implying second, third, fourth, fifth. I don't know what number I was, but amen. But I came after him. All right? Now, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to put these verses on the screen. But if you haven't looked at Isaiah 53 in a while, I would recommend you doing so. We could spend the rest of the summer in Isaiah 53. I'm going to try to go through it here in just a few quick minutes, all right? Isaiah 53, this is one of the most beautiful and accurate prophecies of our Messiah, our Savior, that we have in all the Word of God. All of this was foretelling generations before Jesus ever came to this earth, not only what he, was, you know, what he was going to look like, but what he was going to do and accomplish for us. All right, Isaiah 53, let's begin at verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let me tell you who the arm of the Lord is revealed to. You ready? Those who believe the report of the Lord. If you'll believe his report, you'll see his arm. People have this backwards. They want to see his arm and then believe his report. It doesn't work that way. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Those who have believed the report of the Lord. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised, verse 3, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. If I was teaching from Isaiah 53 this morning, I would break down what griefs and sorrows and, and, and wounds and bruises, all these things are referring to. But it's talking about every aspect of human suffering. It's talking about physical sickness and disease. It's talking about mental illness and disease. It's talking about emotional illness and, and, and disease. All, all of these things, every base covered, these are the things... Literally, it, it, it says our sicknesses were laid upon him, our diseases, our, our weaknesses, our inabilities to get results were laid upon him. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, no one's exempt from this. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is speaking prophetically of Jesus' substitutionary work for you and me. He's going to become your sin so that we can become his righteousness. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Look at me for a moment. I was thinking about this this morning. Remember, he died between two thieves, but was buried in a rich man's tomb. Okay? Can't make this stuff up. Praise God. He, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. Now, here's the verse. I've read this whole chapter because I want to focus on verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Amen. Just as if I'd never sinned. For he shall bear their iniquities. It's my iniquity and your iniquity that he bore. Come come on, somebody say amen to this. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Again, a lot of stuff here that we've, we've, we've went through quickly that we could spend some time talking about. I want to go back to verse number 10, and we'll finish this morning right here. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. Now let's go back in our minds to Hebrews 2. It was fitting for him. Okay? It was fitting for him. He was the only one fit to do it. This is congruent with his nature. But notice it says it was fitting for him for the captain of our salvation to be made perfect through sufferings. Through sufferings. So he's saying that in order for many sons to be brought to glory somebody's got to suffer. Somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody is going to have to take the punishment for our transgressions. Somebody is going to have to pay the price for our iniquities. You see, to the casual observer, verse 10 would sound like someone being sadistic. That it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That somebody's actually getting pleasure out of somebody else suffering. That, that somebody else is, is receiving satisfaction because another person is being put to grief. Another person is being wrongly accused. Another person who does not deserve to be punished is, is, is actually being punished. I don't, I don't often comment on, on political things and what's going on in our, in our world. And, and um, again, I'm not trying to be political. But, you know, we, we all witnessed, if you've seen it, you know, a, a man knelt on by police till the life went out of him there in Minneapolis. Now again, I'm not, you say, Pastor Mark, why are you bringing up something so controversial? I, to me, I, I don't, I have no idea, though, and everybody always says, you know, there's, 
there's more to the story. There is, there is no, nothing I can conceive in my mind that makes it defensible for someone to, 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 to do what that police officer did. And I'm nobody's judge, but I can't, I can't defend that in my mind. I didn't, I didn't watch the eight or nine minute video of, of him dying. Um, maybe I should. But it made me so sad. Pam watched it and she told me later, she said, you know what his last words were? Anybody remember what his last words were? Last thing that man said was mama. When he went unconscious. Right. Now, it's a very sad person. You understand what I'm saying? That would somehow get pleasure. That somehow to see somebody, you say, well, that man wasn't innocent. Well, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I, I don't, again, I don't know the whole story. I know the part that I saw. He was subdued. He was handcuffed. He was being respectful. He was calling the gentleman officer. He was telling him that he couldn't breathe. And the guy just kept on and kept on and kept on. I'm, I'm trying to, I bring that up for one because I know it's something, and I hope you're praying about peace in our nation and, and all those other things, but the point I'm trying to make is any, anyone who would get satisfaction out of, out, of, out of that, that's a sick person, right? That's, that's sadistic. And so again, to the casual observer, all this happening to, to this suffering man who didn't deserve it, can you imagine what back in Isaiah's day when all this is being written, it's like what kind of God would get pleasure out of that? What kind of God would find some, some kind of satisfaction out of an innocent man being punished for everyone else's iniquity. To the casual observer, this sounds sadistic, but I'm telling you it's anything but. Jesus' death on the cross, although it pleased our Father, is the most painful thing our Father has ever or will ever endure. When Jesus became our sin, He was separated from His Father. This is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? It's recorded in multiple Gospels, but in Matthew 27, 46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken here, in case you're not clear on it, it means to desert it means to abandon. It means to leave behind in a place or state. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you left me in this place and in this state. The word carries with it the idea 
of leaving a companion abruptly without assistance or support in a difficult situation. I don't know about you, I'm guilty sometimes of throwing around the phrase, the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, didn't you say something three weeks ago was the hardest thing you've ever done? To be careful of those idle words, right? When Father turned his back on Jesus and walked away from him, it was the hardest thing you ever did. Think about that for a minute. Think about someone that you love in a desperate situation, begging you for help, and you turning your back on them and walking away from them. in their most desperate moment, in their most challenging place in life, you deserting them. I'm not trying to take anything away from what Jesus dealt with on the cross, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. A lot of people suffered at the end of a Roman whip. A lot of people suffered um, being crucified and having to carry their cross. There are Christians who have been martyred in just as horrific ways, if not more horrific, than the pain and suffering just associated with being crucified is concerned. The physical pain that Jesus endured cannot hold a candle, so to speak, to the spiritual and emotional pain that he endured. The longer we spend time with someone, Pam and I will be married 33 years in July. I don't remember what life was like hardly without her. The longer you're with someone, Miss Elaine, how long were you and Fred married? 62 years. 62 years. She said, she said see you later, because we will see him again. To her mate and spouse of 62 years. What's the point? The more you love somebody, the longer you're with them, the harder it is to be separated from them. If you can understand that in a, in a physical, in a physical uh, earthly way, then try to imagine what it was like for God the Father and God the Son to be ripped apart from one another, for Jesus to be separated from God the Father the moment He became your sin and my sin, because sin separates from God. And when Jesus became your sin and my sin, Father turned His back on Him and walked away from Him. That, my friend, is pain and agony that we cannot comprehend. And yet we see that all of this was a choice 
And it was something that actually, in the end, was pleasing to God. And, and I am sitting before Him, I'm, 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 I'm talking to Him about these things, I'm meditating on these things, and, and I'm not, listen, I wish somehow I could bring you into that moment with me, but the Lord spoke some things to my heart during that time that has, that has changed your friend and your brother and your pastor forever. I'm sitting here meditating on this, trying to comprehend this, and, and I'm imagining one of my children in a desperate situation begging me for help, and I turn around and walk away from them. How could this not be the hardest thing Father God ever did? And as I'm sitting there trying to put all this together in my heart and mind, this is what he says to me. He said, I knew that if I walked away from him on that day, I would never have to walk away from you ever again. Because Jesus became our sin. And Father turned His back on Him and walked away from Him. He did that knowing that He would never have to turn His back and walk away from one of His children ever again. If He allowed Jesus to become your sin and be separated from Him, this would mean Nothing could ever separate you and me from Him ever again. Amen. 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 I'm going to dig in this a little deeper. Father turned His back on Jesus and walked away from Him at the moment of His greatest obedience. Did you think about that? Jesus, Jesus wasn't being unfaithful. He was being more faithful. He wasn't being arrogant. He was being humble. The Bible says he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. As he hung there, bleeding to death, suffering, tormented, became your sin, became your sickness, became your poverty. All these things that we talked about last week, right? To make your salvation complete, to make your salvation perfect. He is at the moment of his greatest obedience when Father God turned his back on him. This is what the Lord said to me. He said, because I turned my back on him during his greatest obedience, I will no longer have to turn my back on you when you disobey. Because I turned my back on Him when He was faithful. It allows me to be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to me. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what it means for the captain of our salvation to be made perfect through suffering. Stand with me this morning. The most painful thing Father God will ever endure, the hardest thing He's ever done, 
pleased Him because it meant you finally had a way back to Him and He could treat you like your sin never happened. Father knew that if He turned His back and walked away, He would never have to turn His back and walk away from one of His children ever again. I've heard story after story after story of people telling me, Pastor Mark, at my lowest, at my weakest, at my worst, he was there. Amen. He was there. When I was doing things that I don't want anybody else to know I ever did in my life, he was there. Because he turned his back on Jesus the day Jesus became your iniquity, he can look you in the eye and say, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the way. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the things that you're teaching us. Thank you for the things that you're helping us to lay hold of. Thank you, Father, for your truth and for the wisdom that you're revealing to us. Father, from your eternal word, I thank you, Father God, that it's an ancient book, but it has timeless answers. And Father, I thank you this morning that your word is like water. It's like bread. It's, it's nourishment, Father, to us inwardly. I thank you, Father, today that you are helping us Feast on your presence. Feast on your love. Feast on the revelation of knowing that Jesus' suffering pleased you only because you understood what his suffering would one day mean to every person standing in this room. Father, I thank you that no weapon formed against this family of faith will prosper. Lord, your word tells us to obey every ordinance of man as unto the Lord, and that's what we've certainly tried to do during this very unique season. Father, it doesn't mean that, that we don't believe you are protecting us, and we know that you are. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And Lord, we, we know that there are forces in this world that would want to try to take away our freedom and our liberties to, to worship and to assemble together. and We're not ignorant of that, Father, but Lord, th that's not what this is. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our, our local leaders, our county leaders, our state leaders, Father, our national leaders. Father, we pray for there to be peace in, the, in our nation. Father, that injustices would be brought to light so that they could be dealt with and corrections could be made, but Lord, not for just the wholesale burning and destroying of our cities, Lord. Father, you see all of these things. And Lord, I can't help but think that, that maybe you're asking, where's my church? Where's my people? So Lord, we stand in the gap. We pray, we intercede for this country for the leaders in our country. Father, we thank you for change, for revival. 
Father, this attack against us through this virus, Lord, I thank you that what the enemy meant for evil, it's being turned to good for this country. Thank you, Father, for families that are stronger. Thank you, Father, for um, a, a greater sense of appreciation for the, the liberties that we enjoy in this nation. Father, that the, the evil and, in, and insidious attack of socialism, Lord, against this country, Father, that, that if this season hasn't done anything but expose what life in a socialistic, communistic uh, society looks like, Father, that that's being exposed for the evil that it is. And Lord, I thank you that we are one nation under you. I pray, Father, that you would bring us back to those roots of faith and trust and respect and honor that this nation was founded upon. Father, as we leave this morning, may we leave with a greater understanding of, of your ability to love us and walk with us and never, ever, ever have to turn your back on one of us because you chose to turn your back on Jesus when he became our sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Shake somebody's hand.